0: Hello and welcome back to Sense and Spirituality. My name is Sheila McGregor and it's great to have your company today. Today we leave behind the epic stories of the Pentateuch and move into the second major portion of the Hebrew Bible, the Prophets. As Marcus Borg notes, the prophets are divided into two groups. There are the former prophets, mostly historical books that narrate the history of Israel from the time of the occupation of the Promised Land until the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586 BCE. Then there are the latter, or classical prophets prophets, often separated into the major and minor prophets, not because of their degree of importance in the biblical canon, but basically because some are quite short and others are very long. It is these latter, or classical prophets, with whom Borg is chiefly concerned in this next chapter, chapter 6 of his book, Reading the Bible Again, for the first time. In this chapter, we move forward about 500 years. Eventually, the Hebrew people became unified under the monarchy of King David, long regarded as Israel's greatest ruler and military leader. But following the death of David's son, King Solomon, the kingdom split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Alas, Israel in the north lasted until 722 BCE, the year it was conquered and destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Judah in the south would later be conquered and destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in the year 586 BCE, and some of the survivors were exiled to Babylon. About 40 to 50 years later, the exiles, now under the rule of Persia, were permitted to return to Judea and begin building a new life. It is to this period of the divided kingdoms, their destruction, the exile, and the return that the classic prophets address their fiery and impassioned words. Sadly, many readers of the scriptures fail to understand the role of prophecy in the Bible. Borg notes that he himself misunderstood the meaning of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible throughout his childhood and adolescence. Like most Christians, he thought the prophets were people who predicted the future. Many parts of the Christian Bible, especially the Gospel of Matthew, seem to view prophecy this way and use what Borg calls The prediction fulfillment formula. A good example of this in practice is how Christians have long thought that the prophet Isaiah prophesied the virgin birth of Jesus centuries before he was born. When scholars examined the passage from Isaiah more closely, they quickly came to see that the original Hebrew term that was used was not virgin, but rather young woman. When investigating the context of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it also became obvious that the prophet was addressing King Ahaz of Judah, saying that a child would be born as a sign to him that God was going to protect the kingdom of Judah from the hostile political alliance threatening it. The scripture does not refer to the birth of Jesus at all. This is an expression of Matthew's belief in Jesus' Messiahship. A further case in point. Most scholars do not regard Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus, but again see this as another example of the prediction fulfillment formula. Why would it be important for Matthew and Luke to assert that Jesus was born in Bethlehem when he was probably from Nazareth and probably born in Nazareth? Well, there was a long tradition expressed in a passage from the prophet of Micah and elsewhere that the Messiah would come from King David's city, the city of Bethlehem. Remember that the Hebrew people regarded David as the greatest king and always expected the future Messiah to come from his line. Likewise, the reference to Jesus and his parents returning from Egypt, after the death of the evil King Herod the Great, seems to come from a quote from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. But if you read farther, it becomes clear that the reference is not to Jesus the son being called out of Egypt, but rather to the people of Israel, in this case referred to as God's son being delivered out of slavery in Egypt centuries earlier. What has happened here? The Gospel writers, who were extremely familiar with the Hebrew Bible, looked back to these ancient scriptures and saw in them signs that supported their belief in Jesus as Messiah. For them, Jesus was the promised Redeemer and Messiah of Israel. In their writings, therefore, they sought to witness to the love of God they experienced in Jesus and the early Christian community. Their Gospels are a testament to this love and to their faith. One of the problems, however, that has ensued as a result of reading the prophets in this way is that we have domesticized them and uh, made them safe, even irrelevant we have lost their ability to speak truth to power in our own time in any meaningful way. Listen to what one writer, James Bishop, says as he reflects on Borg's writing. The social world that the prophets addressed was primarily a pre-industrial agrarian one that began to develop within Israel during the emergence of the monarchy in 1000 BCE. These were societies and social systems comprising economic, political, religious, and social structures that were shaped by the cities or the elites who possessed most of the power and wealth as a means to serve their own greedy interests. The biblical prophets sought to oppose the oppression and exploitation that resulted from this monarchical authority, as it was like the oppressive system that the Hebrews faced while in Egypt. In many respects, Israel had become miniature ver- versions of the Egyptian domination system, a system that was in full swing by the time of Israel's third king, Solomon. The prophets did not blame the victims and hold them responsible for the injustices of their society, but rather it was the elites who were primarily responsible for Israel's becoming a radically unjust domination system. The prophets were convinced that what they witnessed was contrary to the will of God, and especially the God who liberated Israel from the Egyptians. Well, friends, when we remove the writings of the prophets from their ancient historical contexts, we give them a meaning that their authors never intended. Borg says that as he grew older and began to study the prophets at university, he moved from a period of pre-critical naivete to post-critical naivete, in which he realized that what the prophets were doing was addressing serious and egregious injustices against the ordinary people of Jewish society. Their prophecies were not predictions of the future, certainly not the Christian scriptures. They were an impassioned cry for justice and an indictment against the social ills and systemic injustice of their own day. A summons to repentance and social reform on the part of Israel's leaders. They were, in short, about social justice. Borg believes that the prophets were people who had a deep, close, personal relationship with God. In fact, he calls them God-intoxicated. So well did they know God, so intimate were they in their knowledge of God, that they were able to proclaim God's will for God's people. And what did God want? Amos's passionate answer was, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah asked a similar question, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Good advice for our time too. This is the kind of repentance God calls for, says Borg. It's not about feeling really bad about our wrongs or our sins, but rather working diligently to erase the social injustices we see around us. It's about embarking on a path that leads to fullness of life for all people, trusting that our loving God journeys with us. That's it for this week, friends. See you next Friday.